You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 69. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, example discussion, and more. Send your feedbacks, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Get your next server up and running in under a minute with hourly billing that you can cap on all plans and add-on services, including backups and node balancers, VMs with full control running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs. Linode has support for all your favorite distributions of Linux with CLI tools that you can use to manage all your Linode needs from your terminal. Run your own private Git server with native SSD storage, a 200 gigabit network with the latest Intel processors, Friendly 24 by 7 support even on the holidays with a 7-day money-back guarantee. Start your next amazing project with Linode with a $20 promotional credit by using code CODINGBLOCKS17 by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. All right. So here we go with probably one of our favorite parts of the show. Hey, that we got we got some review feedback by the way that said that they love our favorite parts of the show so like you know Oh right. all that Joe. Yeah man. You don't have a favorite part of the show. You need to pick uh-huh. one. You're going to have to figure yes. it out. This was some feedback we got off one of the reviews. Sort that out, Jeff. Wow. Yes. So figure right. it out. I'm going to think about it. And I'm going to let you know at the end of the show. All right, sounds <laughs> so good. Stay I'll tuned. Li- I like that. I like that. Yes, you're going to have to wait to the very <laughs> Last minute and a half somewhere. All right. So we'll, we'll see a pull request coming soon. We will. So yeah. iTunes, we had a ton of reviews this time. Thank you so much. I'm going to try and read these and hopefully I don't mess anything up too much. So we have Antis, DNL, Pazabon, Drop Table Star, probably my one of my favorites in here. Andrino, Austin Weber, Digital Analog 9, Cynthia Scott. Is this easy enough to read? No. Squiffy Blarg. That, that one's pretty good. Captain Barbosa, Burgerman835, and Caspers. So thank you to all of you who took the time to review us in iTunes. And on Stitcher, we have Fabio Schmidberger, Ken Dickinson, Crazy Coder, The Recursive Base Case, Worst Milk, Cheesy Programmer, Fudge4231. There's a lot of food in there. TDS Rock, Bio Programmer, Game Kid, Proof by Induction, and I'm going to try this one. Casper's R- Rinkiviks. 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 Something like I, that. It's pretty close. I'm pretty, f- I'm sure I just insulted him <laughs> or her. Getting pretty good. Uh, hey, nice sticker on that uh, on that laptop there, Daniel. Uh, Puzzbon. Very nice to see. It's so great uh, recognizing names in here, too. Yeah. Uh, also, big thanks to uh, Krittner, Krittner, Arlene Andrews, uh, Madaris, and Jayzak2000, who is probably me, I guess. <laughs> uh, I might have done this. It's kind of embarrassing. What, why 2000? Uh, just out of curiosity. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, sounded like sounded futuristic like 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all, I'm totally in the future. Uh, that's awesome. It reminds me of like the the Grillmaster 3000. <laughs> Did anyone else have that kind of reference come to mind? 
Not that one. Nope. Ah, up under my feet. All right. Okay, so moving on here. I was having a conversation. I believe it was in the Gear Channel, as a matter of fact. And Super Good Dave had a comment about he's using an old, like he had a picture of an old Dell mouse that he still uses today and is over 11 years old. I can't think of much gear that lasts that long. So I, I was sort of poking fun at him about it, but he was like, yeah, dude, this thing's solid. <laughs> I was like, okay, that makes sense. So he was like, Hey man, maybe this is something where you find out who's still using what kind of ancient gear out there. Right. And we're going over the clean architecture, clean architecture book so hey for this episode if you want to be entered for a chance to you know win another uh another copy of clean architecture leave a comment on this particular post which is going to be codingblocks.net slash episode 69 and tell us like the oldest piece of gear you still have in use and if you don't have anything old that's fine just say hey look i I buy new stuff every five months whatever but but yeah leave a comment on this post I'm going to win unless uh, Miko's listening. You are? Yep. Yeah, I, I'm going to say that uh, Alan's oldest piece of hardware is probably his headphones from last week. So, <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what have you got? Uh, I've got a, a 2003 Saturn View. No, oh, no, no. It's a computer year. It's so, hey, you said, hey, you said hardware. It was so old, it, it came with a cassette player. <laughs> What's that? You, you might have won. <laughs> Yep. It came with a what? Yep. Cassette player, F- <laughs> FM, AM radio. It was big oh. news at the time. Oh, man. Air conditioning was what I was, what I was really going for. That's awesome. I, I, I kind of agree with him, though. Like, on the on the melt, I don't like his particular mouse that he's using. It was like an old Dell mouse. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was, if I yeah. recall? Yeah. But, like, you remember the old school Microsoft Explorer mouse? I do. The wired one. It was a very good one. I I still have that thing, but I don't use it daily. It's not like a daily driver, but it is like the portable driver. Like the one that I don't care if it's going to get, if it got destroyed in transit, I'm not going to be upset, but I keep it in my bag so that if I do need a physical mouse, I have one. It's a workhorse. And it, it won't get destroyed. So maybe I'm just too gentle on my laptop bag, but (laughs) it's Uh, still there. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, you remember when mice had like those little spheres of the balls in them? I mean, I They'd had one of those. Things. I threw it away. Like I saw, I found it in a pile of old stuff. You remember <laughs> those things would get gunked up and they'd stop oh, working. Yeah. Oh, the wheels. Yeah, yeah you'd man. have to like uh, turn it out, take the ball out, clean the dude. Whatever that nasty gunk was that would build up on the <laughs> wheels was, in man. there, and you know. were like, I don't want to know what this disgustingness is. When did I have glue on my desk? Right. <laughs> Why is there carpet inside? There's not carpet on my desk, but yeah. there's carpet inside my mouse. How does that happen? And for all you young whippersnappers out there, <laughs> no idea. Like, yeah. Wait, how did? Yeah. How did? carpet get in your trackpad see we used to walk we used to walk to school barefoot in the snow uphill both, both ways, ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. all right and we had mouse pads yes oh man <laughs> it's good times Hi, i'm still uh, no. here Uh-oh. oh that's pathetic uh well um the friend of the show zach braddy recently got a course published uh for manning um he's part of their meet program which is like their kind of early access uh the course is called react motion that's really huge news we're really excited for him it's awesome i'm glad to say that proud to say that i'm one of the first customers and uh we'll have a link in the show notes and actually he's given us a couple copies to give away 
So um, since we're already doing the book thing in the comments, why don't you make sure you're on the mailing list where we give away a bunch of stuff and uh, we're going to give those uh, those courses out over there. So join the mailing list, get free stuff. We'll be doing JetBrains here in a couple days too. So um, you should definitely sign up on the list. And speaking of Zach, hey, hold, I hold actually up. did. How do you sign up on the list? If you go to the website, it's in the top right corner. Um, Unless you're on mobile, to, scroll down the page. But yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep, just You're going to notice a there. theme with Alan. He's going to be very specific on us saying URLs and such tonight. I can't, I can't help myself. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> programmers are a pedantic bunch. And if we get it wrong, someone will let us know. Oh, there's no doubt. But uh, speaking of Zach Brady and React, we actually did a like, collaborative uh, pair programming kind of thing where he kind of walked me through um, and I pretended to be super dumb. Uh, and... <laughs> He showed me how to uh, create a React app, and we're going to be dropping those videos on YouTube here um, by the time this episode's out, so I'll have a link to the to that in the show notes as well, so really excited to see that going live. Um, and we're dealing with the Marvel API, so comic books, stuff like that, React, awesomeness. Very cool. Hey, congratulations, yes. Zach. That's that's awesome stuff, man. Yeah, it's huge, man. It's huge. Yeah. Um, Speaking of courses, I also recently got a review copy of Steve Smith's, um, also known as Ardallis on Twitter, at Ardallis, um, course on deviq.com. And uh, I got a review copy, uh, watched it. It was really awesome. It was about five hours, although he's still kind of adding and tweaking some stuff as um, .NET Core 2, uh, 2 just came out. And anyway, I wrote a pretty big uh, in-depth review on it, so you should go check it out. Love the course. It was uh, it was great for an old-timer like me uh, who's used to kind of doing ASP the old way, but it's also great for someone who's kind of new to it. So um, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well, uh, as well as my uh, review of it. So did he all thumbs up. call himself an old-timer? He did. <laughs> as far as ASP goes, yeah, I was doing it back, in, back before .NET. ASP 3.0. Oh, yeah. Good those, times. Those were good times right there. That was like PHP 0.1. <laughs> yep. All right. So this was an email that came in to us, and I don't know that any of us responded to it, but it was a great question. It, it came from a project manager's point of view. And he said, I have a question that maybe you can answer. If there is a room full of programmers working on a project, and if there is another room with just a couple of programmers, which room gets more work done and why? And this is from Gordian. And this is an awesome question, and I think we should all answer it. Like, it, it, Why don't you go first, Joe? Uh, less is more. I think that there's a lot of invisible work and communication that adds up when you get uh, more people involved. So, you know, I, I think it's a fine balance and there's obviously things that you can't do with like three people that you could do with 300. And so there's there's a line there somewhere. But uh, I, I mean, I think I would much prefer working on a smaller team uh, if possible. Yeah, my answer was going to be it's going to vary by situation, right? Um, kind of similar to what Joe said and he stole my thunder. But uh, <laughs> um yeah, there's going to be some situations where you're just going to want to work in isolation. You're you're not going to want to have anyone else disturbing you. And then there's going to be those times where, you know, that group is going to be helpful. I don't know about 300. I think he's watched too many movies. But uh, uh, yeah, so if you're not a Spartan, then, you know, you might want to have like you know, a smaller team of five or so. But yeah, I can see where that might be helpful for particular situations, especially for things that are still being actively um maybe designed where that collaboration is uh, key and you want it sooner rather than later. 
Yeah, I'm so I'm sort of with that. The the only difference is, and I really like this question because it really does drive to the heart of what our topics are, which is it sort of depends on how well you have architected what is to be done, right? Like if things have been given clear boundaries, then it'll be easier to, to have larger teams or, or a larger team of people that might be subdivided into sub teams to work on things. than if you have just kind of this big ball of spaghetti code, right. That everybody has to work on. So I think, I think the point where, where things get a little bit crazy is when you have too many people working on something that's not well-designed, you start slowing down because you really start stepping on each other's toes, right? On the flip side, when you have a small group of people that all intimately know a product, they kind of know the pitfalls to watch out for. So it, it really comes down to good design, I think, in terms of can you scale up a big team to get more work done? Yeah, but you really have to plan it out better, I think is what it boils down to. So that was kind of my take on it. I would add good design or an understanding of the problem domain. That's a good point. Yeah. Which would help hopefully drive better design, right? Well, because the reason why I throw that caveat in there, though, is you might be talking about something that's independent of, a, mm. you know, it could be its own little thing already. Right. 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 <laughs> but I think, I think we're all in agreement that it's not some magic lever that you can pull and say, I have 10 developers now. If I add 10 more, I'm going to get twice the productivity. And it's not a one size fits all answer. Right, right. What we pretty much all said. But just always keep in mind, doubling the size of the team does not double efficiency, right? You might get a third more efficiency, which seems like not enough. According to this book, you don't even get that. You don't even get that. Like it was diminishing returns on bad design. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you have a thousand programmers, of course, you're going to be able to write more code. Are they going to be that more effective at it? Hard to say. Um, and so I, I actually wanted to bring this up because we, we, we've made several jokes over time about PHP, right? Like, and I just wanted to say, I actually had to write some. You wrote some, some SQL injection code? I did. I did. And it's, it's pretty. Like, <laughs> I, I even modularized the SQL injection code. It was, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty nice. So, it, you know, for all the times that we've made cracks at, at PHP, and I know that we have several, several people in our Slack channel that do PHP, like, it was kind of fun to take a step outside and, and mess with something that I hadn't played with in a while. So, you know. Now, why? Well, I mean, what like you, you're you're kind of hinting around it like you did some PHP, but what made you? So our site's WordPress, right? And and oh, so you were doing stuff, but you didn't tell us. Uh oh, Joe. Wait, did you not know this? All right, so oh, basically, sneaky, sneaky. So uh -oh. here's the thing. This is what's frustrating. So our newsletter was getting bombarded with with spam, just trash. And we had, man, I'm going to try and make a really long story fairly short. But basically, <laughs> what had happened was some stuff had gotten through, and basically Amazon kind of shut down our emailer. And we were like, "What in the world's going on? This doesn't make sense." And so I went back and looked at it and it was because there were bots out there just cramming data in there. And so we'd send out things and people would be like, what is this? Right. So for some stupid reason, somebody would put in like your friends or your neighbor's email address and it, and people were like, this is spam. This is garbage. Right. So I put reCAPTCHA on the site, but in order to do that, I had to write some server side code because reCAPTCHA basically does some authentication, right? Like you do a request. And then for those who don't know what reCAPTCHA is, it's like Google's <clears throat> anti-spam kind of thing that they built, right? 
It's but their new CAPTCHA technology. It is their new CAPTCHA, and it's built on machine learning. Like, it's pretty cool stuff. I should probably get a link and put it in the show notes here because it, it's pretty neat how it works. But anyways, so in order to authenticate that the person that did this actually it hit the server properly and got the right token back, I had to write some PHP code to verify all that. So, you know, I took a blob of code out there that I found somewhere that I copied and pasted that had some recapture stuff. And I was like, well, this isn't very clean. And so I like, you know, modularized it and did all that kind of stuff. So anyways, I wanted to say, you know, I, I apologize for all the, you know, smackdowns we've done on PHP over time. It, it was kind of fun. Like it, it wasn't too bad, you know? Yeah. But in fairness though, we, we give every language equal yeah. smackdown treatment we do but php gets picked on more often than not than others i think maybe even more than javascript on this show. I, I would have certainly guessed the java or javascript would have been at the top of our of our smackdown list but okay fine php i will say the closing thought on this was regardless of the programming language you can write pretty code you can you can truly clean up your code right so like take I, that php you actually can write some pretty code <laughs> oh, oh that's awesome lemony if you're out there we're sorry for doing this to you again <laughs> yeah yeah you're awesome hope you're staying warm <laughs> and and you can send all your comments to alan uh, on the slack channel <laughs> no but i mean i don't even know the programming language but i was able to break it up into nice modules so anyways yes I, I, wow that's not what i meant thanks guys <laughs> So, okay, so, so you dogged on PHP and then mentioned that we have WordPress site. Uh, so how long until we're down? Oh, dude, <laughs> come on. Here's, death. here's what I'll tell you. It's not hard to find out if somebody's running WordPress, right? So like that's why yeah, I don't I mind putting it out there. Anyways. Information disclosure, a wasp number eight. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> Fail. Can you cut this out? Right. <laughs> I'll have to edit this out. Yep. A lot of bleeps. Yeah. All right. Who's got this next one? Uh, uh, not it. I, I think we should skip it and do it later. All right, that sounds good. Fine, we'll skip it and we will say that. Hey, if you would like some uh, coding blocks swag, I'm going to have to say a URL because Alan wants me to. Head yes. to www.codingblocks.net/swag, and you can find uh, links to getting some stickers, getting shirts. Uh, if you want us some stickers, or hey, I even have some magnets. Send me a self-addressed stamped envelope, and you can find the address to send that to at www.codingblocks.net slash swag. Yes. All right. Great. And today, um, the topic we're continuing on with clean architecture. So um, next section of the book that we're going to be talking about is basically about uh, different par programming paradigms and uh, solid design principles applied to architecture. You don't say paradigms. Every time I see that word, I have to say it, even though I know it's paradigms. It's paradigms. That makes me very happy. Paradigms. But now I won't be able to not say I that. Know. Thanks I for know. ruining it for the rest of us. Yes, man. For the rest of your life, you're going to look at that and you're going to be like, that's a cool word, paradigms. All right. Anyways. <laughs> it's one of those little twitches in my head, right? Like, Why can't I, you have one? Because you need a pair of them. <laughs> you need a paradigms. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first pa uh, programming paradigm is uh, structured programming. <laughs> we're off to a great start. Yes. Oh Anything boy. else you want to say about PHP while we're at uh. it? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, well, we get a uh, Skype keeps crashing on me. Um, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, yes. We get a, a little history lesson here. 
um, going back to the days of punch cards and uh, writing stuff by hand. I don't know, typewriters. <laughs> and uh, we get a nice little lesson here about uh, Dykstra, who is famous in the programming world for kind of um, championing this notion of functional decomposition or being able to break down programs into smaller and smaller pieces until you get to such small pieces that you can actually prove them mathematically correct or not. And uh, you can also look at performance that way. And, you know, that's back when, you know, performance mattered. <laughs> well, that, I mean, one of the things that he said or one of the things that he pointed out was that programming's hard and people aren't very good at it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. All these years, we're still not good at it. Yeah. But I like how Joe kind of implied that performance doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> it mattered back then, but now it's like, yeah, who cares? Uh, yeah, that's not true. Yeah, I mean, like now we've, you we've seen some of your queries, now. so it's okay. Yeah, you said I've got the interview question where it's like, um, hey, how do you sort a, a number that, or a list that's too big to fit in memory? And, and like now, I would just say I would stack overflow it or Google it or whatever. But like, you could actually probably go in there and say like, sort this list, and you'll find a web page that will just do it for you. You can upload upload like a four gig list, and it'll just figure it out for you. You know what's amazing? I mean, think about that though. Like back in the time when these conversations were being had, there was no Stack Overflow. There was no could you imagine programming back then? No. What are you? Yeah. What are you talking about? You're talking like this is. <laughs> Dude, what? this is a long time ago. I know, but but okay, fine. So we don't use punch cards, but they're depending on the environment that you're programming in. You still care about performance. You oh, no, still no, no. care. Not that. Not no. I'm talking about there were no resources. Like right now, if you wanted to know how to sort a big list. You go, you go say, Hey, what's the best way to sort a, a four gig list? Right. You'd probably find some Google results back then. No, they was, were Alta Vista results, but yeah, <laughs> or Hotbot. Yeah. But no, like seriously, yeah. back then it was, it was a, a mental challenge. Like you didn't have those resources. It wasn't like there was some help file in your IDE that was like, Oh, if you want to sort a four gig list, dude, oh, you only got 64K of RAM, by the way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> four gig. That's your whole yeah. hard drive plus your friends. Yeah. It's a lot of punch cards. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's just, it's interesting how like the problems, the problems have gotten bigger in scope because of scale, but, but the resources available now. So, anyways, go ahead. No, uh, that's been out of, just uh, talking about punch cards back day, um, back in the day, and um, uh, you know a lot of the, like the proof by induction and the kind of mathier side <laughs> of computer science stuff that we still talk about today were were kind of championed by this guy, and uh, yeah, the deal was basically subdividing programs into smaller and smaller pieces that were provably, provably correct, but the deal with that is um, that not all constructs played nicely with that, particularly go to was really bad because you could kind of jump to any location in memory and it broke this kind of nice structured decomposition and it was error prone, but also made it just harder to, to work on and harder to prove things were correct. And so there was a big kerfuffle a long time ago about go to becoming a harmful or being declared as harmful. And there was a uh, quite a war about it for a long, a uh, long time. Uh, and, uh, it seems like they kind of won <laughs> and, uh, Unfortunately, it hasn't completely gone away as we've seen the go-to fail in kind of recent memory. Yeah, I was going to say, we should ask Apple their opinion of uh, right. go-to. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, that's the deal with the go-to, right? It's like, they're still there. Like, if you're doing a, a loop, then there's some sort of, you know, go-to that says go-to back, you know, this instruction number. But um, what we can't really do in modern programming language is just say like, hey, jump to memory 1422 and, you know, keep running. Um, so, that's... uh. 
that's something that we lost, but is it made things much easier. And modern languages have just totally skipped over that or made it impossible to do. Except for SQL. You know GoTo still in SQL, right? Is it really? T-SQL. Do? Yeah, T-SQL. You can totally do that. In a stored proc, you can actually have a GoTo and a label. So I can go to a label, but I can't freaking order by a variable. <laughs> I think I just hit a sore spot. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. You, totally you can. That's correct. You can do one, but not the other. Well, I about wore down that soapbox, so I'll uh, I'll stay off it this <laughs> night. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, so uh, yeah, proving something is incorrect is really important, but um, that's not... That's not such a big deal when we're talking about architecture. You know, we don't really talk so much in this book about um, accuracy. Um, but uh, math was basically the discipline kind of pushing that stuff forward and was, um, applying those mathematic and scientific principles. Yeah, there, um, were, there were some statements in there where he said that uh, math was the discipline of proving provable statements true and science is the discipline of proving provable statements false. And hmm. he gets into this section about tests where he's talking about you know testing and he's saying well in regards to to testing software is like a science because we're our tests are showing correctness by failing to prove incorrectness right which which in a nutshell means that you can prove something is incorrect but you can't prove it's correct that's that's really important to to understand right i hadn't considered my unit test like that but yeah it was weird it really is, right? Because you've even talked about like it's over still time. a little bit of a mind melt there. Yeah, it kind of stinks. Like if you think about it, because over time you've even said, you know, man, I had like 20 unit tests around this thing and then and then I found this other edge case. Right. So you had proved that it was as correct as you knew it to be, right. but you couldn't prove that it was, you know, completely correct because you can't think of every single edge case out there. So it, it's an interesting notion to take away from that. Yeah, I think the the major takeaway from this section was just that uh, structured programming gave us a good mechanism for transfer of control, mainly by eliminating um, things like go to and emphasizing this decomposition into a, like a nice clean hierarchy. Yep. You want to take OO outlaw? Is that because it starts with an O? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Outlaw has those. So, uh, object oriented. Programming brought us polymorphism. So there were some of the main benefits of object-oriented programming are incrementally better than what we have. Um, there was actually, I think it was in this chapter where he said that it, you know, where object-oriented programming didn't bring us anything. It provided nothing new was the quote yeah. that he actually said. Yeah. It's, yeah, it was a pretty big smackdown of it. Like, and uh, a lot of the concepts kind of talked about like, this is what, OO is kind of touted for, and here's why it's kind of you know not not so different. Yeah, so like if you were to ask, you know, your typical kind of interview type question, you might hear something like, uh, "So what's the benefit of object-oriented programming?" Or maybe that's like you know a topic of conversation in like a classroom or something like that. And you hear, you often hear this, um, and I mean we're probably even guilty on this show of saying it in past episodes that uh, you know. The benefit of object-oriented programming is that you can model things after they quote real world, right? Um, and I think we've I think we've even talked about like uh, the ability, you know, animals versus specific animals and how the inheritance structure and things like that, right? Right. But he made this 
awesome, uh, you know, comparison. I don't know what to call it. Okay, fine. Correlation. Where he was saying that, hey, before we had, like, one of the things that that people give credit to object-oriented programming is encapsulation, right? But um, we actually had better and true encapsulation when we just had plain C. And he gives this example of how in C you would define something in your header file, but then in your implementation, um, you know, those things were totally separate. And so anything that included your header file, it knew nothing about it, no implementation details, it purely new signatures, and that was it. But then, you know, fast forward to languages like C and and uh, you know, everything later, um, Java, C sharp, whatever, you started that enca- encapsulation got weaker as we went forward because things would start to leak. So in the case of C++, you had to start putting some of the details of your structure into your header file in order for the compilation to work, right? So you might have to put some of the member data of that class in the header file. Um, and so it was it was a sort of leakage of information that started to... Um, break some of that encapsulation like maybe maybe you didn't depend on it but you knew of it right and he goes on to say that you know the inheritance was incrementally better than where we were um but and it's and it's more formalized and safer now but uh you know it's not so good anyways and then um you know the benefit of it providing the polymorphism was really trivial right well, um, it made polymor- it made it trivial. Oh, sorry. Yes, it it, it made polymorphism trivial to implement much easier in yeah. in the newer languages, right? Um, hey, going back real quick before you. So, one of the other things that he did mention about the whole encapsulation is weaker, and I thought this was interesting. Is w- when he said that when you look at Java and C sharp and all that, they had to introduce basically hacks in order to keep things encapsulated. So the private, the protected, all that, that was literally just a hack in order to hide those implementations. Right. Whereas going back to the C days, again, you had a separation, a true separation of it. So I thought that was interesting because we kind of, we, we look at it and we're like, Oh, this is a great feature of the language. But in reality, it's sort of like, Oh, this was bolt on to accomplish what they had already been doing back in the day. Now, granted, there's some differences, right? Like with the the protected versus the the private and all that kind of stuff. But it is an interesting thought to approach it that way. Yeah, and and in fairness, the way he he worded that wasn't that it was necessarily so much a hack as it was that it partially repaired uh, the encapsulation. Yep. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, the, that's the main point was that like when C, you kind of had this like forced interface um, because you had to use these .h files if you wanted to be able to communicate like or someone be able to communicate with you outside of your file. And C++ weakened it by um, exposing those member variables and private variables in that .h file. C Sharp, Java, those guys just got rid of that .h file and they reintroduced those, you know, the, the scoping so you could control that but ultimately, like people are still seeing that stuff if they're looking at your code, or you know, and and interfaces are a way to bring that back, but they're not required, and so a lot of people don't do them, and so it's like this kind of optional weird thing. But yeah, just like you said, like it's weakened it, like iteration after iteration. 
Um, so it's kind of funny because that's something that you would typically have named as a strength of OO. Yep. Yeah. Th- he, he, I don't know about you guys, but as I was reading this chapter, um, I mean, he makes a strong case for going back to C. And I know that in our Slack channel, Alan had a conversation where he was like, you know, you ever feel like you just want to go back to the days of like a C++? <laughs> and this book makes a stronger case that you should go back even further. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah I don't know why I said that. <laughs> yeah, I saw those stars in the uh, the pointers in the uh, examples of the book. I was like, oh man, I'm so glad I don't, I don't have to deal with that. And just even the variable names and stuff that I've seen in C code, like I know that it doesn't have to be like that, but I'm thinking about the .h files I've seen. It's like, Hey, my P2 star returns a P3 C1 star, no. you know, and there's a underscore M somewhere in there. It's like, what the heck is going on? Hey, have they, have they created a garbage collector for that yet? I, I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need a heap. That's right. All right. So yeah. Uh, um, continuing on there. What you got? Yeah. I'm trying to remember where we left off. So, uh, I think Joe covered that. You know, the interface is making things more formalized and safer. Uh, and that the interfaces will allow for safe and reliable indirection. Yeah. And just real quick on that. Um, so the reason that interfaces made things better is that in uh, like the C world, like you would basically just kind of treat something as if it was another object. And if those kind of memory locations happen to line up because you kind of put stuff in the same order as the other guy, then it just worked. And that's how drivers work. There's a couple other really cool examples in the book of like where things like you just kind of specify this stuff in this order. And when you like use this object as that one, like it just kind of works and everything's good. But if somebody comes along and kind of mucks with one of those, then suddenly you've got stuff happening out of order. It can be really hard to debug. You're calling invalid memory locations. Like who knows what's going on? You know, you're kind of doing a little bit of weird go-to there yourself. Yeah. By having these interfaces, now we've got compile time support or depending on your language, maybe runtime support. For something so it can tell you like nope this is this is can't be done this is not safe operation yeah i really didn't like the example that he gave with the the struct where you had two that were like you said because they coincidentally were um you had variables or members let's call them of the same name in the same order in the same place of the structure then yeah you could cast one as the other in order to uh you know access that same region mm-hmm. but like you pointed out I-, I viewed that as like extremely dangerous like that's that can't scale well it, maybe i mean one of the examples they gave was like the standard in and standard out mm-hmm. in unix right and the fact yeah. is you you're coding to a contract, which is all an interface is anyways, except, you know, back in the day, that's just what they did. It was a plug-in architecture, right? As long as you took the same shape plug and stuck it in there, it worked, right? So it may sound dangerous and, and true, right? It, it is. There was there was right. no formal really thing that defined other than the fact that, hey, this plug has to fit. And and when you think about it, that's that's what they boil this entire section down to is that is what OO bought us was the ability to swap in pieces. That's it, it was all about this whole pluggable architecture and and controlling the dependencies because that's really what it boils down to, right? Is once you can swap those things in, now you can control where the dependencies lie. So in that example, okay, so 
I mean, obviously you got to make a joke then that like, so you're saying Linux and Unix scales then <laughs> since those were, uh, <clears throat> Unix examples. But, um, I mean that type of contract as you're calling it though, it wasn't something that was enforced by the compiler. And that's right. what I mean by like, right. it's, it, it's kind of dangerous, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah as far as contracts go, it's a fist bump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, so I think I kind of jumped the gun on that. So we were talking about, so the OO didn't add that ability to have the plugs, right? That was already there, like right. what we were just talking about. The OO gives you that compile time safety with that. But what he was getting to was being able to control the direction of dependency. So in when you think about going all the way back to episode one, I believe is where we talked about eyes for interfaces, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole notion is if you have an interface, you have a contract of what can fit there. And now if you do that, you can control the level or the direction of dependencies. And a lot of this really depends on dependency inversion or, you know, inversion of control type stuff to where Mm -hmm. you inject some of these. Well, let's not mix those two. Well, it, it sometimes goes hand in hand with it because right now, if you create something of a type object, like he even had a nice little tree in in the book that shows the way that typical dependencies go, right? Like you're going to have this top object, which is main. And then if you need to instantiate anything under it, then it's going to create another object. And then that's going to create another object, right? The The difference is when you start having polymorphism and you have things that, that adhere to a contract, now you can just swap those pieces in. And typically the way that you'll go about doing that so that you're not that you're not having to new these things up in your code is you'll use something like dependency injection, right? So that you can have that swap it in at runtime or or whatever. So it allows you to control the direction of which these dependencies go. Like if 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 you have a business logic layer that is i business logic layer and then you have, you know, an i storage layer they don't really care about each other. You just know that you need to plug one in. And so th- those, they're not hard, fast, this points at well, that type thing. Yeah. The reason why I very, where I said like, let's not mix those things. Cause you know, with inversion and control, and then you brought up in dependency injection is that dependency inversion is just the direction of what knows about what it depends on. Okay. Right. Good point. Yeah. And so that, that's why I want to be clear and just kind of stay on that with, um, cause when we, cause that is the D in right. solid coming up. So I don't want to confuse those things, but, um, there was another great point in here that I hadn't really considered like this. Cause there's a lot of statements that he makes in the book where, um, kind of like the one you alluded to a moment ago about like, uh, object oriented imposes the discipline of indirect transfer of control. And there was the statements that I made about math is the discipline of proving provable, blah, blah, blah. He says that, uh, polymorphism is an application of pointers to functions. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't considered it like that, but I guess if you had to like break it up into as few words as possible, he would win that lottery. You know what else I like is the whole plug-in thing. And interface is literally saying you can plug in anything of this, right? We've talked about contracts, like you have to adhere to this, but a lot of people can think of a plug-in, right? And, and it's easy to say, well, if you have this plug that fits here, then that's the interface, right? If you have that interface, any plug that fits that, you can swap it in. And that's, I really like that. It makes it real easy to visualize in your head why you should have an interface. 
Yeah, I'm totally so. But I just I was really excited to read this chapter, and like I've been a big fan of uh, interfaces for so long, and to like kind of hear him say like this is the ultimate power, this is the reason for OO, this one thing is why OO is still around. Interfaces. So I do want to ask you guys on interface this, and I want to bring this up because this is totally side topic to this, but it's directly related. I hear people all the time. Why are you making an interface for that? Right. Why are you making an interface for this? And I, I argue it a lot, right. In terms of why a lot of times, if it's a DTO, I can't give you a single good reason to create an interface, right? I, I really can't. If it's just a dumb object that has no logic, no behavior, no nothing. It's just a bag of data. I can't think of a single reason to create an interface. I may be wrong. On the flip side, if it's anything that has any behavior at all, I pretty much think you should make one. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if that's necessarily a perfect, you know, catch-all rule, but it feels like it is. I think we've addressed this before in a previous episode though, and one of the things that we had said was that maybe not for that first use of it, but when you find that you need a second, that that's where you would maybe introduce the interface and use the interface because I think because yeah I've gone I've kind of gone back and forth on this too where it's like okay I know I'm only using this thing one time but I'm gonna go ahead and create the interface for it so that if I ever need uh something else to implement this interface then I can and then you end up finding like maybe you don't ever create that second one but yeah I'm really torn because you do set yourself up for like maybe a future success by only allowing other things to be dependent on your interface. I don't know. And that's not overcomplicating things in my opinion, because at that point you've, you've followed that O part, right? The open for extension closed for modification type thing. And that it feels like adding one file or one implementation thing is not really that much extra code. You know, but Joe, what are your thoughts? I know, I know you are like heavily opinionated on interfaces. So I'm curious. Yeah, what I, take. I love them, but that doesn't mean I do them all the time. Like I definitely try to kind of do things with a more kind of practical bent. So, you know, I like, well, what I'm about to say is totally different from what I, what I do. But I think based on the reading that I've been doing, what he's kind of saying is that by having those concrete classes in there, you're kind of like spreading the volatility. Right. It makes a good case for interfaces changing less often because anytime you change an interface, by definition, you have to change everything that implements it. So that means that um, the the things that implement are going to change more often every time you have a bug fix, every time you have a little whatever. It's changing more often than that interface. So by definition, those interfaces are more stable. And as we know, like with testing and other things, it could be really hard to kind of pull stuff out uh, at a later time. I like so that. So it's kind of like. So it forces yeah. you to really think about changes first, right? So Yeah, and there's one other reason, too, that I think it makes sense to um, declare that um, interface up front is that um, if you don't have that interface, then any other code that depends on that concretion, <laughs> that volatility needs to recompile every time you recompile that concretion. Um, and that's because they're they're tightly bound to each other, like de facto but if you've uh, got that interface there then you can change that class underneath and not have to worry about that other system at all and you you can see like without a shadow of doubt that these things don't affect these other things until you're drawing hard lines around your code that are kind of hard to do after the fact 
Okay, so going back to the DTO example, though, would you do an interface on a DTO? I have, but I don't feel good about it. <laughs> so uh, let me give you an example. I, I just did this uh, recently in the game I was working on. So I've got like these randomly generated levels, right? And um, and you're a little dude, and you'll like walk around and kill other you know people, whatever aliens. And um, it's all randomly generated. So I've got these lookup tables where I can say, hey, this is the map ID. Um, let me get all the items and I have like a, a weight table. So it says like this, you know, health items like appear five times more often than weapons or something like that. But I also have a table like that for uh, creatures. And so I say this creature appears three, three times more often than that creature. So these are two tables that have similar type columns. And so I've got a DTO for creatures. I've got a DTO for items and both of them have like a weight on them. And so I slapped an interface on. So I had a single method that basically says like, hey, get me a random something and it takes the weight into account. And so I did just slap an interface on those DTOs, even though I don't like it because I feel like it's like kind of pushing some behavior type emphasis onto something that shouldn't have it. So I still don't feel good about it, but I absolutely did it. So I go ahead. I've definitely done it on uh, request response type DTOs. Hmm. where I've ended up where I'll have multiple I might have multiple responses and they have the same structure going back okay okay I can see that all right I mean that those are those are fair enough I so all right I'm with you but I I don't know that yeah I don't know that I really like it in my case like I definitely felt dirty and like I knew that I could have normalized the data differently in order to kind of have like one sort of like entity ID table with the map ID and the weights in there. But it was just like, for me, it wasn't practical to have that sort of abstraction. Like I'm, you know, I'm dealing with a much smaller, you know, I've got like 10 tables in my database. So it just didn't seem like it was worth it to add another table just for this. Yeah. I got you. I mean, that all makes sense. And, and I just realized for DTO, for anybody that's not aware of what that is, that's just a data transfer object. It's, it's literally, Hey, I have a database table over here. I need to get data from here to my application, right? That's usually what they're used for is just moving data from one place to another. Typically very little to no behavior, right? No behavior. Yeah. So that would be, that would be like a POCO or a POJO. Right. A plain old class would have behavior. One that has no behavior, but data only would be a DTO. Yeah. So I, I could see it sort of in the request response thing. It, it's an interesting thing. Like it, and I get the decoupling so that you only have to compile one side versus the other. So that's even another place where I typically wouldn't have done an interface, but I could see why. But for the most part, like anytime somebody argues the fact with me, I'm like, man, I like, I don't want to try and convince you, <laughs> you know, it's man, if anyone's going to argue my pull request, cause they're like, wait a minute. I don't like that. You introduced this new interface and it's only used by your one thing here. And I'm like, what? Yeah. What does that, it matter? You're right? going to argue about a pull request for over that. Right. It's it's just interesting. You uh, should have seen all the other code I wrote. If that's what bothers you, <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, well, what's funny is like a lot of times the interfaces that I write are in the wrong spots. Like I'll have like interfaces in my tiny little you know area of like a you know my uh, my what's it called the uh, know, diamond in the rough right where I, I've made this little gold plated module you know and so I've got my little interfaces there and you know everything's testable whatever. But really, what I think I would get more benefit from at least you know that's where I'm coming from in the perspective of reading this book is like it'd be really cool to have a bigger section of my code modularized and behind an interface so I could define like the um, I don't know payment processor module, right. not my little you know I pay you know whatever like the whatever dinky little interfaces I'm doing, but I'll, 
what I think uh, I'm kind of thinking about in terms of this book is just um, having those interfaces at a much higher level than I normally think. I, I tend to think of like interfaces and tests going hand in hand and I come from, at it from that perspective. And so I tend to end up like when I'm going down this road with a lot of little interfaces. But now I'm thinking is like if I had been thinking about this stuff as more of a system, then maybe I'd have some sort of like enemy spawning module or maybe just a spawning module that has an interface that kind of is higher level than my little DTOs. Because that's Not to what say the DTO thing is wrong, but it just it's because that's what the external parts of the system will interact with, right? That's really what it boils down to is how is this thing going to be used? And, and it's drawing those lines in your system. So Yeah, and if I had that interface there at like the spawning module level, then I could have like a, say a map, for example, that constantly sp spawns enemies. Or I could have a map that has a fixed amount of enemies. And, you know, I could just have these different kind of um, strategies that are involved there. And I could plug and play these whole systems. You know, I could create these pluggable architectures, which is kind of like the whole point that we're talking about here. Yep. Cool. All right. So I guess I will kick off the next one, which is uh, functional programming. And it's interesting because this one's really short and essentially it buys us correctness at the cost of performance in many cases, because the whole purpose of functional programming is immutability. Basically, you can't change the meaning of a variable. Once it's been created, that's what it is. And if you want another one, you create another variable, right? Like that's basically what it boils down to. I didn't get the the cost of performance though. Uh, so we'll get yeah, into that. Mentioned it. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. It's 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 basically like when we talk about the event sourcing thing here at the very end, which was interesting. So so the immutability thing, and then there was the uh, redirection, right? There's this whole thing that you can keep redirecting to, to kind of chain things together because you're never changing the state of the original thing. It just keeps building on it. So that's interesting. So the event sourcing thing, and I forget exactly what the definition was. I'd heard of it before, but I'd never actually thought about it too deep in terms of what it meant but you mean say it it's the rebuilding go ahead event sourcing is a strategy wherein we store the transactions but not the state okay so this is where it could be at a cost of performance so the one of the oh, examples right. he gave yes. okay. was think about this you have a bank account and you start out with whatever you deposit in it right right and instead of you just storing every you know Hey, I added $5. Now I have $10. I added five more dollars. Now I have 15. Instead of that, anytime you want your bank account balance, you have to take the beginning state and apply all the events that have happened since that point in time. Right. And what he said, and this is interesting, right? What he said was this wasn't really all that possible several years ago because we just didn't have the computing power for it. And you might even think that that's kind of crazy today. Mm -hmm. Like you would never do this, but look at Git. That is what Git does. Mm -hmm. Git takes your file and it applies changes over the entire spectrum of, of changes that happen. And that's how you end with your last file. So it's possible. And there are still performance implications of it, but he even said, if you wanted to take this and because as a developer, you have to worry about state, right? You always do. Now it's just where you store that state and how that's handled. So the functional part of it is it's not going to mutate that state, but you can take that and save it off. So maybe you can't go to your bank account from the beginning of time, mm -hmm. but maybe you have a, uh, a set point at the beginning of every day, right? So you can have these checkpoints and then you build off those during the day. And actually uh, your favorite thing, Joe, the SQL server 
like the uh the when you talk about his favorite i think it is <laughs> um when you're doing differential backups on that thing that's basically what it does right it snapshots a point in time and then it does differentials on that and then the next time you go to do it it'll snapshot it and then do differentials on that so it's truly building it up so so it happens. It exists right now. Event sourcing is a thing and this whole computational thing and, and, and the processing power required, like we've sort of reached that point to where it's available. And so immutability, functional programming, it, it's, you know, it kind of plays hand in hand with some other things, but it, it was an interesting take on this stuff. Yeah. And uh, the, because of that, the immutability, you're um, looking at a total lack of side effects. Um, so things like race conditions, deadlocks, um, concurrent update problems just kind of disappear. So if you've got some sort of system that does some sort of, you know, critical math account, you know, bookkeeping type stuff, like it's worth considering having a, like a little functional section of code or an application or service or something. And if you can push more and more of your code out to these areas, and it's a good way to avoid some really um, tough problems. So he's just kind of mentioning as like a, a tool in the belt, like it might be really tough to base your whole business around, you know, Haskell services, but there might be some parts of your system systems that would benefit greatly from being written in a, a functional way. And we've talked about this in the past that everything that you can write functional, if you do write it functional, it'll make your testability way much, 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 much improved um, because it's a, it's a lot easier to test those functional methods than it is to have to worry about state. Yeah, I mean, because in, in functional programming, it's... Uh, it's idempotent, right? Like basically everything that comes in, there's a guaranteed result. You call a thousand times, you're going to get the same result because your state's not mutating. So yeah, the testability part of it's amazing. But as we know in applications, a lot of time you have to depend on state. It's just how you, how you interact with that stuff, which yeah. we talked about in domain driven design too, right? You're not going to be able to functional everything. Right. Right. And, and so if somebody tries to tell you to do that, you, you, you turn away. And you walk out and be like, I can't talk to you anymore. Yep. So, anyway. so that section was pretty short, but it's just kind of a, a cool little idea there to keep that tool in the belt. Um, but just to kind of to recap on the, the, the pro, programming paradigms, um, structured programming gave <laughs> yes. us direct transfer of control. OO gave us indirect transfer of control. And functional gave us a discipline of assignment. But each of these... Do I have to say paradigms? Paradigms. Each, each, <laughs> each of these paradigms takes away something from us. It restricts us in some way. Yep. And software isn't advancing as fast as we think. Take that, JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. I think that was Joe's comment there. Yeah, it was yeah. mine. That was yours. Oh, man. And here's the other one. thing, right? And whoever put this should read it because it's true. Who put this? Oh, up? I'll read it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, going back to what Alan just said about the software isn't as fast. Yeah. Easy for me to say. Isn't advancing as fast as we think. The rules of software haven't changed since they were originally documented. So you know, during these chapters leading up to this, you know, he goes over the various history going back to like 1946, where it's like, Oh, well there was this concept that was documented here. And then, you know, later concepts and, you know, he gets to like, okay, all of the, all of the topics that define what software is were discovered, or if you want to call it that or documented 
in a 10-year span, and they haven't changed since then. Everything that we do in software is still composed of sequence selection, iteration, iter- uh, and indirection. Nothing more, nothing less. That's it. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It doesn't matter what new technology we're talking about. It's still the same. Yep. And without that kind of level of indirection, if you're working in an OO language, then you're kind of still doing structured programming with some sugar. A little bit of OO mixed in, maybe. Yep. Something to think about. And then it's funny. A lot of people are like, you shouldn't do OO. You should do, you know, compositional type stuff. So it's funny how this stuff goes back and forth over time, which is sort of mixing the functional with the OO stuff. So, so like you said, uh, programming is hard and programmers are bad at it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're hoping to make people less bad at it, including ourselves. So like we won't, we won't exclude ourselves. All right. So the next, the next chapter we get into is the design principles. And we actually had an episode on this. And for whatever reason, I never look it up. It's it's the episode solid, seven. Was episode and seven. we heavily referenced Steve Smith's uh, Pluralsight videos, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show. That's the guy who, uh, who did the course that I got a freebie. And did a review of. Can really I good. can I say he makes some solid courses? Yeah, he makes a, he makes a lot of really solid courses. Actually, I looked him up on Pearl Site. Uh, really, <laughs> quite quite the resume there. Yeah, that is a solid recommendation. That is that is I like it. So <laughs> so we're going to briefly touch on just kind of go over a quick definition of these solid things, and. And we're also going to put the spin of what he means by architecture lever- leveraging the solid because there's solid within code and then there's solid at the architecture level. So what he talks about is what most people are used to are the mid-level software structures. Um, and the whole purpose of solid is to make those things tolerate change. They're easy to understand. And they're the basis of components that can be used by many software systems. But what he wants to point out in that is you can have great patterns in your software, right? Like when you write your code, it could be the most amazingly patterned up code and everything, but it could still end up being a mess because it doesn't interact on on a whole level with the rest of your system, right? And so that's why he wanted to make a, a differentiation between what is the solid that most people talk about versus what is solid in architecture. So to... I thought of a way to illustrate that you could create, let's go back to Joe's game modules that he was talking about, right? You can make all of these various modules and each one independently could be beautifully written code, right? And, and by themselves, they're all, they all adhere to the solid principles. But when you try to compose them together into one application, you could still get yourself into a diamond dependency scenario or we've just talked about dll hell right and that's where now you you made these things pretty at the low level but when you get into the higher level uh architecture you still have a mess yep totally that's perfect that's a perfect example and it's not hard to do that by the way right it's really not hard to make a mess out of clean stuff and actually, I wanted to point out there are really good tools for helping you prevent that mess. Like I made a video a while back on my game where I was looking at uh, using Endepend to um, figure out where I was basically I had mutually uh, dependent namespaces. And another way of saying that is I had arrows going both directions. So I didn't have a hierarchy. I had a cycle. And so I was able to use the Endepend to kind of figure out where the problems were and reorganize things a little bit. And um, it's, it's still a mess. <laughs> And so uh, static it analysis. feels like a mess when you work on it. Static analysis. Yeah, static analysis can help with that stuff. For those not familiar with Independ. 
There was another tool that one of my buddies, uh, Momolu, had actually told me about before. It's called Sonar Cube. Mm-hmm. I'd never mm-hmm. looked at it, but it's something else that's interesting. I will um, put a link in here somewhere. Yeah, I saw it in a meetup. It looked amazing. And it had that same kind of notion of um, it would give you like hours of like technical debt. So you could kind of see it coming up and going down. I know that's not the main point of it, whatever, but I still thought that was a really cool concept. Well, it's another static analysis tool and it has uh, team services integration support. Um, so you can in- include it in your build pipeline. You can do the same thing with independent, except, you know, the independent doesn't have a specific, uh, team services integration that I'm aware of. Yeah, I don't think it does. And, um, uh, just for the record, it's spelled sonar cube Q U B E. And I, I'm putting it in the resources we like. And by the way, Independent now does have a um, some integration with VSTS and some extensions. That very nice. So yeah. let's get into the solid principles, starting with the S. Single responsibility principle. I I want to do this one because I there were there were some things that I liked on it. I thought it was stupid repository problems. That could be part of it. Okay. We, we, uh, if you ever deal with large teams, that, that does come up on occasion. <laughs> so the single responsibility principle is there's one and only one reason to change. Now that's the, you know, code developer mindset definition of that thing, right? The mindset in the architecture. I really like this. So he goes through it all. I'm going to give you his end definition on it, but he kind of steps through it and is like, well, if you do this, then that becomes a problem. If you do this and that becomes a problem. What it boiled down to was the final definition in terms of architecture is a module should be responsible to one and only one actor. So think of like the stakeholder of the system or whatever, the actor. And that's really important because the example that he kind of goes into here that I really like is let's say that you have a CTO, a CFO, and a COO, and they all have these things where they have to calculate pay, they have to calculate overtime and all that. In good OO design, if you're a developer, you're going to be like, okay, well, I have an employee, right? And then that's going to have calculate pay. Well, let's say that the CTO and the COO have different things that they use to determine what the pay rate is for overtime. Well, if you as a developer go in there, you can write all the unit tests in the world and you can go in there and you can say, okay, yeah, the CTO came to me and said that, I, you know, we need to change how this, this overtime is done. You put your unit tests in there, everything passed. That COO had no idea that you were changing that code. And so now, yeah, you've got a good OO approach to it, but the problem is, is you've now broken it for another actor that was tied to that piece of code. And so that's the architectural piece of this that really matters because you affected an, an actor who had no idea. And that's a problem. Yeah. I was, I was actually thinking back towards like times where not because you created the change already, but because someone asked it and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I know you want that, but then you're going to affect this other department. So we can't make the change that you want without impacting them too, as it currently exists. Yep. And it's interesting because there's there's a lot of approaches to fix this. You could, I mean, just thinking out loud, you could be like, well, what if I made the CTO, the CFO, and the COO their own classes, and then I'm going to have to make their own implementations for that. But now you're duplicating code all over the place, which kind of stinks. And, and he pointed out a couple of things that I thought were kind of interesting, which were 
okay, maybe what you do is you abstract away the data tier of that. So that calculating all that stuff, the data tier is what brings the stuff in and then those methods operated on it, right? That may not be perfect because maybe that data tier crosses boundaries and that doesn't work out. So another way you could do this is instead of having the employee class, you have three separate classes uh, or you know, maybe you break it out differently to where you're not even doing it based off the actor. You have a pay calculator, an hour reporter and an employee saver type thing. And then you have a facade on top of that. So that's another approach to it, right? So basically you create this nice little intro or interface into the functionality you need, but those are all broken apart. And then they even had another one that you could do, right? So you have this employee, but now you just break out the methods. And this is where it was kind of interesting is let's say that you have a calculate pay and you'd have a calculate pay for the CTO, the CFO, and the COO. And he said, the argument that you'll typically get, and you will get this is, why are we creating separate classes for one method? And his argument is, okay, so it looks like that, but that's usually not how that breaks down because there's probably a ton of complex business logic in there too, or or maybe even if there's not a ton, there's enough of it to where it's different enough that you're going to have hidden implementation. So you might only be exposing that one method, but in reality, you got three or four or five or 10 private methods in there that are doing work on that. So that's a bunch of different approaches to solve that problem architecturally so that when you make a change to the COO's, you know, calculate pay, you're not messing up the CTO or the CFO, right? So, hey, you got an IDE, right? It's F12. <laughs> but I do, I do have to wonder, like when we talk about stuff like this, and we talk even about like dynamic languages and some of the the like, Rubies and the Pythons and JavaScripts of the world don't have like uh, formalized interfaces, stuff like that, like. Is anyone doing this kind of stuff in the Pythons, in the JavaScripts, in places, uh, in dynamic languages, basically? I would say, okay, so maybe that's where it's not fair, right? If you're using something like TypeScript and JavaScript, it makes it a lot easier to do things like that. Yep. It almost forces it down your throat. Because well, I'm kind of wondering, it's like, is clean architecture assuming that you're working in a C Sharp or a Java or, a, a, you know, it's just a static compiled language? That's interesting. I mean, yeah, because JavaScript doesn't enforce anything. Ruby doesn't enforce anything. You can cram whatever PHP. you want. It's on you to enforce it, right? It, it's yep. it's basically, it's yeah, it's completely on you. And there's no doubt you're going to be getting file explosion here, right? I, mean, I guess it doesn't say you have to create simple fi- separate files for every class, but I mean, you're creating separate files for every class. Well, if you don't, then it's hard to manage anyways, right? Like, does anybody yeah. hate it when people put two classes in oh, one file? It's <laughs> such a pet peeve. I don't like it. <clears throat> there was another example in here that he gave, though, which is where, um, you know, I made my joke about the stupid repository problem. He talks about like, well, what if you have the CTO and the CE or the COO each need a different change to the same area of code. So two different developers make a change. Now they need to merge, right? So now you have a merge problem. And there was there was one that I thought, a statement here that I thought was particularly relevant to some conversations we've had outside of this conversation where he just says, merges are risky affairs. They are. <laughs> it, man, okay, so another side conversation. And we're not going to go too deep into this, but... Somebody said something, our friend John said something the other day that I can't believe never hit me, but it was such, it it was like a revelation. Why is it 
I don't, why is it code gets tagged for release? You have something in this branch over here that's being tested, but before you tag it for release, you merge that code into another branch. That's just because of that one process, though. That's not necessarily. Like that's a- how it's done, almost always, right? Like you, you typically merge it back and you tag it. Like why, master is or your or your trunk, depending on whatever your your repository is. That's typically what you do, right? Like you merge it in and then you tag it there and you release from that branch. Now I took it as more like. He was pointing out like, hey, uh, this is a, an improvement we should do in the process. Maybe, but that's how I've seen it done mostly. Like usually there's a merge before tagging, right? Like, hey, we're going to put this in our main branch, right? Or our main code trunk or whatever you want to call it. And I thought that was crazy that that is how it works. Like never really thought about it. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of never doing the merge. That whole conversation about never merging. Oh, yeah. I didn't like that at all. I still don't like that. <laughs> we need an, an updated source code etiquette episode. That was we episode do. three. We do. We we have lots of things to add to it now. <laughs> I don't World, think- World War Git. Basically, the never merge, because I know that I said that and then people are like, wait, what? The never merge option is, imagine if you had your master branch. We're in a, let's talk Git. You're in, you're in your default master branch. And then you branch off of that to work on your next release. And when that next release is done, you um, branch off. You that. drop the mass. You drop master. You drop that branch. You create a new branch called master off of that other one, <laughs> right? Like you, you're basically renaming that other branch to master. I know that Git doesn't. You can't rename branches, so let's avoid the semantics of that. But let's just say that you drop the original master branch you rename the existing branch as master and then you create the next dev branch off of that new master. So you're never merging your development branch back into master is where that conversation came from. And and it was just kind of the timing here was interesting that here's, here's our buddy, uncle Bob telling us (laughs) That merges are risky affairs. And they are. They totally are. And yeah. And he knows everything. So yes. him, Michael Feathers, and uh Martin Fowler. If it's if one of those three didn't say it, then it's probably <laughs> not true. <laughs> so with that, let's get into the O, the open closed principle. Uh, I lost my place. So this is a system can be changed by adding new code, but not by modifying existing code. Uh, in short, you're open for extension, but closed for something. Closed for change. Yeah, whatever. C words. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's late. Come on. It is late. So you have rest of development. Uh, the name of the boat. Anyway, um, I really like the idea of this. Um, in principle, it's, it's fantastic. Like imagine being able to change something without having to change any code. Like everything's additive, which is funnily enough, a common problem at a lot of places. Like people keep adding new code because they're kind of afraid to touch the old stuff. But in this case, your code is so clean and so malleable, you're able to kind of make your new changes in there and reconfigure things so that you're kind of using this new flow. And so the idea that you don't have to change much code is really fantastic. It's like if it worked once, it still works. 
So that's at the code level. Now, the interesting thing that they pointed out on this one, though, from an architectural standpoint, though, was there's this implied hierarchy of it. And and basically what they were saying is anything that shows up at the top of the hierarchy, that thing should never be impacted by changes to lower level code, which is the whole idea of functions and classes and all that stuff, right? But if you if you picture it, think about like your core business logic for your application. That should be almost at the top of your hierarchy, right? That stuff is pretty well known, pretty solid, should should never change, really depending on anything, unless there's a new business rule that comes in, that thing shouldn't be touched. But if you have like a view or a report or some, you know, different views that exist down at the bottom of that chain, those things should be able to be added to. If you have a web view of something of your data, that should not impact your business logic, right? If you have a new report view of that, that information, that should not impact your business logic. So that's really what this is talking about is, in code, we talk about this open for extension and, and you know, that's dealing close with your- Close for modification. Close that for modification. That was the term I was there looking for. So you're not ever going to go open that code. In this case, you're almost talking about modules of the system, right? And that's that's really the difference. Instead of getting down into code, we're talking about entire, entire pluggable pieces that come in. Well, think about microservices. And now you think about one of those services has to change. And, and so, you know, maybe your- uh, you know, your order system now can do split shipments. And so now your order processor and any other services that touch that need to be able to deal with split shipments. Like that can be a major pain in the butt to roll out. Like how do you roll out these services at the same time or roll them out in such a way that it's like, you know, you can handle both or whatever. It's a, it's a big pain in the butt. But that's kind of where this principle kind of comes in. And we're saying that like if we don't have to change these existing services, we can kind of add new stuff on top of or kind of compose these things a little bit better. I think it might be a little bit of a pipe dream to kind of think you can just kind of keep wrapping services with services in order to kind of compose things uh, without changing them that often. But I think it's still a nice ideal to shoot for. Yeah, it's a good goal, right? But I mean, this kind of goes back to the example of the device driver yes, talked about plug. before, right? Is that because it's this kind of pluggable type architecture, right? Like when we talk about uh, open for extension but closed for modification at the code level, we talk about examples like what you you described there. But this is now trying to like rethink some of these principles, but from an architectural point of view. So you know, if I want to add in that new device driver to Linux, I don't have to recompile the kernel in order to be able to use it. Exactly. I like it. It's so, it's so here's the thing. And and Uncle Bob Martin said it at the beginning of the book. This stuff sounds like a pipe dream, but he's seen it work. And when it does work, development is so easy, right? So maybe it's worth striving for that pipe dream in this case, right? Like make sure that you're doing things when you're building systems to where you really take and and you guys remember in the first episode we talked about you have to fight for it. Like you it's your job as a developer, as an architect, as somebody who cares about this domain of code, it's your job to make sure that you're pushing for these things. So, yeah, I mean, he, he wraps this up by saying that you, for this particular uh, portion, you're, you're trying to accomplish this goal by partitioning the system into components. And then as it relates to the open close principle, you're going to care about how you arrange those components that in into a dependency hierarchy so that you can protect the higher level components from changes that happen lower level. 
Yep. Yep. All right. Who's doing the bag? Oh, yeah. We didn't put anybody on it. I'll do it. I haven't done it in a while. So let me say then, if you have already left us a review, uh, we thank you very much. We love to read those. They put a smile on our face every time. Uh, And if you haven't, we ask that you head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And there you can find links to your favorite aggregators that leave us a review. And uh, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. And with that, I think we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. No, no, it's my favorite portion of the show. I got confused because we were trying to define Joe's Joe's favorite portion of the show. (laughs) I forgot my own portion of the show. We can't have nice things. Does that mean that you you don't truly have a favorite portion of the show? You can't even remember, man. I know, right? All right. I'm still like, I I can't remember the open-close principle. So, yeah, my whole (laughs) night is shot here. Um, Yeah, so we head into my favorite portion of the show, Survey Says. So, last episode we asked, how often should your employer replace your computer? And again, if you were self-employed, you count as your employer. So your choices were every three years, every two years, every one year. Or who stays at any employer long enough to have that problem? Or wait, they're supposed to replace it. Or greater than three years. So let's see. Alan, I'm going to pick you because your name starts with an A. That's that's logic. Yeah, I'm going to say every three years with 40%. 40%. Yeah. All right. Joe? I'm going to go with every three years at 30%. Every three years, 30%. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're both wrong. <laughs> Nobody stays in an employer long enough. Go on. <laughs> you know, I put that one in there and I really expected that was going to be the the runaway hit. And surprisingly, it wasn't. Every huh? two years, wow. 40% of the vote. Interesting. Oh, let me get on this email then. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now uh, every three years did take, that was the, the number two answer with 31% of the vote. Oh, okay. So how much was the percent on the every... Two years? Did you say? It was 40. 40? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. I got the number right. That was close. I said Yeah, 40. you had the, no, the right number, but the wrong yep. answer. Joe had the... No, he didn't have any of it. Well, he had the right number for the, the wrong answer. Place. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, I don't know. Open, close principle. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, So... In today's episode, we ask, how often do you replace your phone? Do you replace it every year? Because you got to have the latest tech or every other year or not until it breaks. And even then, maybe not even then. Yeah, I know the answer to this one. What? No, this is a fixed answer. It's it. <laughs> it's every year. Uh, is no. that the answer? No, it's not. Oh, <laughs> no. 
Well, I think the three of us would already be all over the map. I'm going to say, I'm going to say I would be every year. Uh, Alan's going to be every other year and Joe's going to be not until it breaks and maybe not even then. But the reality of it is that's what I say. But the reality of it is, is Joe is absolutely not until it breaks and maybe not even then. I am every other year and Alan is every six months to a year. No, I'm actually every (laughs) other year. No, you're not. You have way more phones than I have. No, dude. Recently. Yeah. No, dude. I no. So my, my, it's literally every other year, except for when I bought that windows phone, when I bought that windows phone, some, you know, 20 years ago or whatever that was 20 years ago. (laughs) Oh no, it's been, it's been right out every other year. Yep. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's well, like every other year for the iPhone, and <laughs> every other year for the Android. <laughs> no, no, no. Mine's truly every other year for me. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. If you say so. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you guys, you guys nailed me. So I'm surprised <laughs> that say. I'm surprised that Joe hasn't been uh, talking to us about his Pixel Two. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no headphone jack. So, oh, not doing it. It ruined it for you, huh? Yep. Wait, what version really of the iPhone do you have? Six. You're on the six. Oh, so you have a fairly new one. What? Mm-hmm. That's two years, right? The, no, the six. Then there was the six S. Then there was the seven. Now there's the eight, and then the ten is coming out. Wait, but didn't the seven and the seven S come out? No, no, there wasn't there a seven. Wasn't a seven S. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So there was the six, the six S. But those were separate years. I can't those remember. Those were separate anymore. years. They started doing things at the same time. Like now they have the no. Eight they and just eight. started that with the eight oh, and the okay. ten. Okay, so it's two years. I though. still live in Georgia. Uh, I mean, he's and he's it was two jobs ago. Yeah, whatever, four iterations back. So it's been over three years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Oh, all right. And I'm still, I still miss my 4s, which I had before it. Yeah, you like the little itty bitty phones. Mm-hmm. I, I, I need <laughs> that video you sent. <laughs> Carry uh, around a Thunderbolt monitor. That's what I want. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it is crazy though. If you think about the, if you, if how everything is cyclical, so right. So there's this period of time where everyone will go to or go towards wanting everything to be smaller. And we got to the pinnacle of that with cell phones. And I think like the, the razor, the Motorola razor was it. Yeah. Right. And then there was the advent of the smartphone and those stayed kind of small and, you know, easy to use with just your thumb in one hand and easily fit in your pocket. And we had this great generation of phones that were like that. Right. And then it was like, Hey, let's start making these things bigger and bigger and bigger. It's because they're used for more now. And now they don't fit in your skinny jeans and you see somebody walking around (laughs) where like half the phone is hanging out of their pocket. And it's like, that's about to fall. Well, the cyclical thing though, that's, I mean, you got to stop wearing bell bottoms. You I mean, <laughs> but they're so comfortable, man. But you know, they're the so- um, the flip phones were big in America, but in Europe, and uh, if you knew some, I, I knew some Bulgarians that would get their phones from like Italy or something. They had these little things; they would hold it like a pencil up to little the ear. Sticks, yeah. It's like they would have to like move it between their ear or their mouth, depending on whether they were talking or not. <laughs> uh, we're ridiculous as human beings. Uh. Yep. All right, who's got who's well, got Liskov? I got something. Uh, I got something before that. Actually, um, this is not my favorite section, <laughs> but I do like it. Um, and uh, this is where I'm going to ask you guys a question about <laughs> it's our his, most it's recent. His it'll do section. Uh. Uh, it'll do that, that. That fits. That fits me nicely. 
Well, um, so uh, we do these uh, JetBrains giveaways every month. We have three licenses to give away. So if you're not on the mailing list, you should join because uh, you respond to emails like this, asking you, for example, what your favorite horror movie is because it's that time of the year. And there's a chance that you're going to win uh, a one-year license with a fallback perpetual, whatever. We'll send you the details if you join the mailing list. But um, I did count up the emails, which is very time-consuming, by the way. Uh, and I graphed them, which was also very difficult. <laughs> Pie charts. <laughs> don't get me started. But I have aggregated the top. And so, do you guys want to guess what the uh, number one scariest movie was according to the mailing list? Scariest? I know exactly what it is. And I'm going to hate this answer. Blair Witch. Uh, nope. Uh, no. Well, that makes me feel better in humanity. All right. I mean, no, like I kind of want to say Halloween one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> someone almost won uh, all six prizes. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, wait, what about? Uh, all right, so was it Halloween? Uh, Halloween was number two, was tied for second. Okay, so hold on, let me think about this. It, it had to be Nightmare on Elm Street. No, that was way down at the bottom. Really? Okay, I don't know. Yep. I mean, that was certainly one of my favorites. Stephen King's it. Yeah, that was number one. But um, some people specify old. We did get a couple of news, though. But I just lumped them all together because some people didn't specify. So. Yeah, because clowns are creepy. <laughs> yeah, we've got uh, It, uh, number one. Halloween, number two. I did count the sequels, though. I did not count all the <laughs> person who sent it six times. <laughs> Uh, the Shining was tied. Um, Alien was up there. We did get one vote for Aliens. I don't know if that was a typo or what, but um, no, nah, that can't be. Uh, Saw franchise also. Oh, Saw was amazing. And you know what? Um, actually, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was up there, but Hocus Pocus was surprisingly high. Hocus Pocus. In fact, That's, it beat there were the some ring. of these movies that I didn't count in this genre. <laughs> <laughs> that that was one of them. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't remember. I set the tone. I said mine was Beetlejuice, though. Yeah, so. and I think that's oh. where like things went wrong. Wait, what about? Yeah. I, I know what you did last summer. How come that's not in there? Nope, it's not in there. <laughs> there was one though that was kind of funny, where it was like, uh, oh man, it was like a Java conference or something, or Java Java Zone. Yeah, Java Zone. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah, we got some really good answers. Um, we got a couple office spaces as well. <laughs> oh yeah, that was, I remember that. Good stuff. Yeah. So we're gonna post this, right? Yeah. Excellent. Well, I mean, we are now. Thanks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Great. More word for Joe. <laughs> uh. All right. So the Liskoff substitution principle. Software systems should be created with interchangeable parts that adhere to contracts. This kind of sounds like everything else we've been talking about, doesn't it? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's all kind of tied together. But in short, um, this is a nice description we got from Josh Skeen. Because um, if you look at the actual definition for this principle, uh, it's really mathy, really hard. There's like Greek letters in there. There's a phi. There's oh, like man. a theta. I-, I can't even understand the original writing of it. Can yeah. I read it? Thanks, Barbara Liskov. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it's amazing that anyone ever got this principle out of this. So, you know, hooray to them. But she originally wrote... What is wanted here is something like the following substitution property. If for each object of O1, and I'm, let me rephrase that. If 
For each object O1 of type S, there is an object O2 of type T, such that for all programs P defined in terms of T, the behavior of P is unchanged when O1 is substituted for O2, then S is a subtype of T. And uh, that O, that was someone being nice to you because it should have been phi. There are too many letters. <laughs> yeah, they had, to, they had to go Greek on it. But uh, a shorter description, thanks to Josh Keen. And I f- actually, I Googled this description because someone wrote it up really succinctly. So I Googled it and found who I think is the source. But I found so many people not citing the source that I had to call them out. So um, th- this is a shorter description of the same thing. Objects in a program should be replaceable with instances of their subtypes without altering the correctness of that program. And this uh, kind of harkens back to the argument we had about the square and the rectangle where you say set width on the square and it does something different when it's a square and something different when it's rectangle, even though you would think they would have like a common interface. So that's an example of something that violates the Liskov substitution principle. Yeah, I think it was the circular, it was the circle ellipse, wasn't it? Wasn't that the? Is that the same thing? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I was trying to think because it was like back in the project management um it was in the anti-patterns section, the circle ellipse. Yeah, the square, yep. rectangle, circle ellipse. Yeah. Yeah, but the idea there is that, that that's kind of an example of something where the, um, you know, we've got these two things that meet a common interface or they have uh, maybe a common parentage and you call a method on the child and it gives a different um, different result from if you, as if you called it on the parent. So you are not able to substitute that child in for the parent because it behaves differently. Well, yeah. So to, to illustrate this further, the example that he specifically gave is that if you were to write code, if you were to try to create a relationship between the square and the rectangle where they were, they shared some inheritance, whether, you know, whichever one was the parent and you wrote code such that you had a test they said, hey, if I set the width to to um, one value and I set the height to another value and then I check for the area and I assert that the area equals uh, some value, then that that would be broken if you substituted in the other type. That assertion would break if you substitute in the other type. Yep, so that's a, a bad example of Liskov substitution principle. Yep. Luckily, like we talked about, that doesn't really come up too often. That's a pretty contrived example. You know, there are certainly cases of it, but doesn't really seem to come up too often. However, there are times when, um, you know, we'll, we'll uh, inherit a parent and override, or we'll inherit from a parent and we'll override some of that behavior. And that's where things get kind of tricky because we're either mutating state and kind of poking around in the internals and doing things differently and returning the same result or we're not returning the same result. Either way, it's kind of bad and it's pretty tough, I think, from reading this, that it's pretty tough to override a parent's method and not be messing with the LSP. Yeah, and there Anybody was another there? part in here too where it was talking about like you know the um you know the interfaces that we have today, right? They come in in many shapes than just your your 
C sharp or Java style classes and interfaces, right? And he makes this example of like thinking of your rest interfaces as another form of this, you know, contract that we talk about. Yeah. And certain languages don't have like this um, specific uh, inter- interface construct, you know, something like a Ruby or Python or something. And uh, they still have uh, what we'll call well-defined interfaces. You know, they'll have classes that have to have this method and that method in order to be able to do things. Um, or they'll have some sort of common, you know, parentage or, or lineage that gives them those abilities. It's just that uh, it's a little bit more loosey-goosey when it comes to enforcement, uh, which is not great. But, uh, and, you know, th- those languages are popular for a reason. They give you a lot of, of power and you can do a lot of things really quickly. So, trade-offs. Go ahead. Um, and there was an example in the book, but I... I uh, think we should just not talk about it because <laughs> I thought it was a cool example, but this episode's gotten a little long and I didn't really think it exemplified the Liskov substitution principle as much as it was just kind of cool. Really? You didn't think so? Oh, I like the example. I just didn't understand how it applied to the Liskov substitution principle. I think I feel like we need to talk about it now a little bit. Yeah, now we got to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So in short, we've got a system that aggregates aggregates and feeds. So it takes a bunch of different feeds from different sources. And one of the feeds is not like the others. Like it just, you know, I'm sure you've seen this a million places. You've got 10 sorts of things you're, you're bringing in. And number 11 does it just a little bit differently. And the easiest thing you can do is just say, all right, if it's number 11, do it this way. Otherwise, that way. But uh, Uncle Bob recommended having basically a, like a feed configuration lookup instead where you can kind of look up the different feeds and get like some sort of pattern and get that difference. And so you've encoded that difference into data now. So everything else stays the same. Now, if you get a new pattern, you don't have to make any sort of changes and the system is just more resilient to change. And it seems much more readable and configurable and just better all around. And so I really liked that example because it was like, Oh, here's a problem that I do deal with like inconsistent data. And here's like a cool way of solving it that irons it out and makes things just it lets me maintain a good clean model but i didn't understand where liskov came into it so i think what it boiled down to for the liskov plugin so i get why you're saying that it was if you if you think about what you were talking about rest endpoints that had slightly different signatures or something like that right the problem is is typically what people do is they just muddy up their code right like if starts with this or if has this pattern then do this else if it's this then do this pattern and the problem is that's not maintainable right because over time what if what if one of those changes again and now you got this whole mess so what he was saying is and this is where the liskov comes into play is architect your system to where it can handle that. So maybe those places where things are inconsistent, there's like a template that you can use, right? So it requires additional programming to make it substitutable at that point. So I think that's where he was getting at with this was like, you know, you have different domains that it comes from, or maybe, you know, again, the rest endpoints aren't compatible. Instead of saying, if this, if this, if this, you have a template on the URL that says, if this slash, you know, get library slash template that can be plugged in slash whatever. Right. And then that way it can just be plugged in. It doesn't care about the format anymore because you've made it to where there's, you have your own interface that will work with all of them. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. And like, I, I get how we kind of made like a little pipeline out of it that now we can kind of extend. And so I definitely agree that it's completely better. I just didn't quite see that kind of, um, 
you know, inheritance, like, you know, I didn't see a parent child relationship there. I didn't see the child or parent acting differently. So I just didn't really get how it applied to the rest of the chapter. Well, remember, it's not parent-child, right? It's just substitution. It's literally, how can you swap these things in and out, right? Okay, yeah. So, this is a more modular design. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. How can you swap it without having to change anything else? And that's really what this one boiled down to. And I liked the way he um, concluded this section, too, because in a recent episode, we were talking about, I don't remember the exact conversation, but something about like... uh, inabilities to like rewrite portions of an application or something along that line. And, and someone wrote in, I don't remember if they wrote in by comments or if it was a, in on the episode and discuss, but um, they talked about something kind of similar to what he wrote, concluded this chapter with, which was you know an inability to substitute parts of your application, of your architecture there in your application and, and the problems that I, that has. And specifically as he says it here, that, that inability can pollute your overall architecture because you end up having to include extra mechanics to overcome it. Yep. Right. And I thought that was kind of, um, you know, nice that it it was in line with some feedback that we recently got. And that pollution that you speak of is the if else's and all the switches and all the additional garbage that you have to try and handle all those special one-off situations. So, yep. I like that. Uh, next up is one of my favorites, and actually that video I talked about where I used independent uh, to kind of figure out where my cycles were, um, kind of dealt with uh, or how I got around it actually was uh, interf- interface segregation principle. Don't make classes depend on classes or interfaces that they don't need. And what I found is that I did, I was absolutely doing that. And, and kind of an example there is like if you would take it a whole customer record when you only need an email address. Um, and so... What that means is anyone who's calling you has now got to figure out how to construct this customer object and they may not have a customer. They may be trying to fake data to get it there or it may not make sense for them. It may be difficult and the whole time you don't even need that. And so um, you're, and you, it's not safe for anyone who calls you to think that they can pass you this kind of dummy object with just the email um, filled in. So you're making things tougher on your callers than they need to be. And there's actually some other um, problems with that as well. They don't really get into too much here. They kind of allude to talking about it later. But um, whenever you do that sort of thing, you're also taking on dependencies, which means if you recompile that customer object, if you change that customer object, now you've got to recompile too because you've got that like that tight coupling there. And it's easily, easy to kind of leak stuff. So next thing you know, you're grabbing things from that customer record that you – you know, just kind of nice or convenient or whatever. And there's no clear way now for a client to say, okay, they need the email address and this and that and any other specific like state rules about it. Hey, so I want to back up and talk about your specific customer thing. So what we're saying implementation wise is you have an iCustomer interface, right? And let's say iCustomer just for simplicity's sake has name, email, and address, right? And then what you're saying is there's this other piece of code somewhere that that needs an email address, but because you don't have like this I email interface, you're gonna look and say, oh well, this I customer has email on it, so I'm going to implement, you know, I customer. The only thing you need off that is email. And so now you're getting this extra stuff that comes along for the ride that doesn't make sense, right? It's out of context, it's not really the same thing. So that's when, when you were talking about that customer thing and getting that object, it's because you're using an interface that it exposes more than what you need in one particular place. 
Yeah, for me, like I, I would be lucky to you know have those interfaces in the first place. It's more like I have something like a, a customer notifier or something, and I'm working on a customer. I'm thinking about customers. Everything I'm doing is oriented around customers. I need to send an email to a customer. I write a method that takes in a customer. It sends off the email, and then maybe later I come back and break that class up because I'm like, you know what? I, if I kind of take this out, or I pop in an interface here or something, maybe it makes it easier to test whatever. But um, now that I've done that, I don't go back and refactor and say, you know what? This method only needs this one thing. And so now I've kind of created this coupling where there just doesn't need to be. And it makes things harder to see. It makes things more difficult to compile. Um, it, you know, there's the, it's just kind of bad. I don't know that it's terrible. It's like if there's one you could probably get away with. Well, isn't there, there was the old example of the Microsoft, I think identity provider or something like that, that used to have just like tons and tons and tons of methods that were associated with it. So if you implemented I, you know, identity, then you got all this garbage or it might've been I profile. I can't remember what it was, but it, you you got all this stuff and they're like, yo, I just really needed the authentication method. Right. So that's when you, that's this whole segregation principle is really, it shouldn't have been one big interface for it. It should have been I authenticatable, I, you know, profile, I whatever. And then that thing could have implemented each one of those things. Right. Yep. Yep. But you imagine where you like pass like a authentication header to something and say, hey, what type of encryption are you using? Right. And then like you could think that makes sense. But if that method would instead say, you know, take a string and say, hey, you know, what's your type and convert it to an enum or something like that, it's much more reusable too. So people searching for that code to do other things with who may not have an authorization header, they might have some some other sort of, you know, information can now kind of use this method because they've got that more granular information or before they were prohibited and probably didn't even know that was an option. Mm -hmm. There is a interesting portion of this chapter there where he was talking about how, as it applies to uh, languages that, you know, maybe this is an, a language issue rather than an architectural issue. And that, you know, some languages like, um, you know, C like languages, um, C, C plus plus Java, C sharp, et cetera, where you have statements like includes and using and ports, um, that it would create the dependencies that dynamically typed languages don't have this concept, right? And that it's because they don't have that, that you could argue that those you're able to create systems that are more flexible and less tightly coupled, uh, because they don't have, because they don't have the, um, those dependencies. So you're saying the the loosely typed languages are easier. That's what he's saying. I feel like you're trying to like oh, back no, me no. into a JavaScript corner here. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Huh. But I think either way, like you still have the same type of problems, it's just just kind of different. Right. I mean well, the, the difference is in C sharp, if you implement something that has 80 members on it. And you only need two of them, you're stuck with it, right? Is what he's getting at. In JavaScript, you don't have that. In Ruby, you don't have that. You just say, hey, I want these things, and that's it, right? But there's nothing that enforces it one way or the other, I think, is where the sloppiness is, right? So it, it's kind of pick your poison. <laughs> well, I kind of took it the point is like we need the interface segregation principle in the static languages because of we're getting around the language issues. Right. We're trying to not 
have those dependencies like you know the in the examples that you guys gave where you know you're not you don't mean to leak that information right with like the other the additional customer information that isn't necessary or the additional information about the identity provider like you don't mean to and leak that for those cases where you don't need all of it but because the way that link particular language is all of that stuff is coming along for the ride in the case of these dynamically typed languages because you do, because they are dynamic you already just don't know right right that but that's not a it's not a good thing it's not like those languages are better um, it, it says at the end there that uh, this fact could lead you to conclude that the ISP is a language issue rather than an architecture one. Right. Oh, yeah, I guess you could take it either way. Wait, you took it to mean the other? You, you yeah, it? I totally did. Oh, interesting. I was like, oh, it could lead you to, to conclude the ISP is a language issue, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> and now even reading the, the paragraph, I'm not sure which which way you meant it. Yeah, I kind of took it to I kind of took it to mean that Languages like a JavaScript, for example, because it's dynamically typed and doesn't have, you know, you don't have to do requires where you're kind of leaking. I never thought about the, you know, an include statement as a leak, but he's kind of leading up to that, 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 that that's a type of leakage, right? Mm-hmm. And that dynamically typed languages don't have that. And then as a result, you have more flexible systems that are less tightly coupled. And, it, you know, it kind of made sense because then I was like, well, I guess... You know, you think about JavaScript and my mind immediately starts thinking web related kind of things, right? And REST as an example of that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, there, there's, you're not making an include statement when you, because you want to use some REST service, right? Yeah, but now um, like if you do have like a Ruby service or like a, a service is probably about it, just a Ruby method, uh, it's really hard to know what, pieces you're using out of that that object but i guess it kind of avoids the problem altogether by not even uh i, I don't know my my brain just melted well i think i think one thing that he points out here that i help i think help identifies the problem that he's trying to illustrate here is dependencies right minus the fact that there's just things like interfaces but dependencies when you're including something if you have A depends on B, but B depends on C, you just now made A depend on C, even though A doesn't care anything about C. So let's say that let's say that C was a database, right? A doesn't care about a database, but all of a sudden, because it it's now using B, it has to have C. And so you're creating that because you brought along more than what you needed, you've now created these tightly coupled dependencies that can really mess you up in time, right? And, and that's what he was getting at with this whole thing was, even I know we were talking about down at the code level, but at the architectural level, and really a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about with architecture has to do with dependencies, right? Like how do you swap in and out these things? And when you tightly couple yourself to something that you didn't expect, you created a problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Crap. Sort of. <laughs> I have to reread the whole book now. <laughs> Suddenly everything has changed. I mean, that honestly, that's <laughs> that's the one thing that's kind of been a little bit. I didn't mean to melt your brain there. They, they, you know, he talks about the code because that's what everybody's familiar with. But then he tries to bring it up to the architecture level, and and just about everything I've seen so far is how do you how do you keep these dependencies clear lines drawn between them, right? Like how do you keep these boundaries up? And that's that's what it seems to mostly all boil down to. 
Yeah, I think I brought some of my own baggage into this chapter. <laughs> I think it's because you like it a lot, right? And so, so you're passionate about it. Uh, yeah, I'm just like I've never heard people saying, you know, like like architecture and dynamic languages don't really, you know, you don't really think of them together too often. So, I mean, I think about like SOAP and WSDLs and XML when I think about architectures. I think wait, about UML. I don't think about duct typing. Wait, does WSDL still exist? Is that no. a thing? <laughs> All right. So, our, yeah, so, so then it makes kind of beg the question then about going circular here. Dynamically typed languages don't have these concepts, he's saying, and that it they don't have this language problem that we're trying to solve with the integration segregation interface segregation principle. But then now with like modern Java's frameworks. So we're getting like you know a level deeper here. Now we're not at the language level. We're getting into specific frameworks, and some of these frameworks bring in the concepts of requires or imports. Yeah. So maybe maybe those are doing it wrong. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, leave us a comment and let us know, and you'll be eligible to win a copy of the book for yourself. That's right. <laughs> uh, all right so the last one the d in solid and this one is the dependency inversion principle so this is where the code that depends on the high level policy should not depend on the code that implements the lower level details that's yes and sense. uh dance to die told me that from here on out after this chapter we're going to be getting into acronym city oh, and fine. i've already noticed they're referring to this as the dip <laughs> well, so I mean, all of it. these, all of these, uh, you know, LSP, every every place for yeah. the last chapter, it wasn't uh, interface segregation principle. It was ISP. Right. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. My internet service provider got involved here. <laughs> what did they do wrong? Uh, the OCP. Yep. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah, looks like we're already there. Yep. So on but, this uh, one. Yeah, they're saying nothing concrete should be depended on. Yeah, and I, that like hurts. That means like no classes. It means everything is an interface or and not necessarily an interface or an abstract class. Well, hold on, hold on. Again, I think we're going too far down into code. Think about yeah. it from the system level. You know, component-wise, you basically want to depend on interfaces of that. So talking about your game earlier, right? You were talking about, hey, if I rethought this, instead of worrying about everything in down here at the lower level details of this, what if I made my game interface something to where, you know, there was this I game interface or something? At that point now, you have set up the abstraction at your architectural layer, right? And I think that's really what it is, is you shouldn't depend on game. You should depend on I game, right? Mm-hmm. So I game, you game, we all game. That's right. I yeah, game. The library I use um, unity that takes care of like inputs and stuff like that. So I don't have to worry about keyboard or joystick. I can get specifics of if I want to do some you know specific stuff and that's a good way of doing it. But um, it's nice to kind of have that level of abstraction. If I can kind of take that lesson and apply it to other areas and have bigger modules, then it would make the sequel a lot easier to do. Probably hmm. I'm already thinking about the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to your one true love. Yeah. Although, you know, <laughs> sequel it's weird. and the sequel. We do talk about this, like, we're trying to talk about it from the architectural level, but he definitely mixes it, right? Like, he goes back into the, 
you know, don't refer to volatile concrete classes. Don't derive from volatile concrete classes. Don't override concrete functions. So it, it's it, it's definitely mixing the two, right? Between between actual low level imp- implementation versus you know higher level component based structures in the architecture. And again, this one was trying to invert your dependencies, right? So that, um, you know, he may, he makes a statement in here where he's saying that statically typed languages inheritance is the strongest and most rigid of all relationships, right? And by using interfaces, going back to the, um, the previous one, right? That's like a ty- a way of trying to get around that of of not introducing that dependency elsewhere. Yep. So yeah. this is trying to flip your dependencies on its head so that your your higher level parts aren't as dependent on those low level details. And that's done by using factories for the most part is what he's talking about here, right? Uh. I mean, in the specific example that he gave, he gave, yes. What did you say, Joe? Yeah, factories are one way. Um, You know, one thing I I noticed that he does not mention at all is dependency injection framework, which I think a lot of people, myself included, often get kind of confused with this principle, but there is no formal relation between that. That is a tool for this problem, but it's not the way. And I kind of screwed Uh, up. And so I think that's why when he said factories is one example, what he was saying is like, I'm not even going to touch the F word. <laughs> well, the other F word, right? The other other F word. Anyway, <laughs> framework. Oh, that one. Yeah, but uh, it does mention that nothing is kind of nuts, and there are like things that are built into the system, um, like things like string, like in terms of language, like strings and stuff like that. Just like primitives that are what he says, uh, what he calls not volatile. These things that are very unlikely to change, and so you know if. If you're going to depend on anything concrete, then those aren't aren't so bad. And I kind of got me thinking about like a system level too. Like there's probably things you can think of like, you know, you're probably going to have files. You're probably going to have some sort of concepts that kind of tie back to uh, traditional computery stuff. Um, I kind of read that portion as it's really your stuff that that you have to be more yeah. aware about. The stuff that you're writing or those third-party packages that you're bringing in. Um, that aren't necessarily part of the framework, right? Yeah, you can so, complain about Windows all you want, but you're the hot mess. Yeah, yeah. So, so like the system uh, namespace or system dot web namespace. That's probably that might not be the one that you're as concerned about. Is in but your particular namespace is the one that you're trying to protect more in this regard. At least the way I read. It as it related to the architecture um, portion. Yeah, I like that. And uh, I like the definition of volatile there. Although whenever I see a word like volatile, like it always kind of like takes me a second because it's such like a not normally in my vocabulary, you know, like it makes me feel like it's a reserved word. But I think volatile here, they just mean likely to change. And then they also tell you to never mention the name of anything concrete, concrete and volatile in your code. Just thought is a uh, pretty cool. And uh, yeah, and also mentions that dip violations can't be removed entirely. So, and that's a lot of things. Uh, we just like we talked about. You know, it's okay to kind of let some things slip if they are 
um, you know, not that volatile, they're built in, or if they're just too hard to remove. And for the things that you can't remove, if you can kind of push them to the edges or push them into the corners or consolidate them somehow, then that's a valid strategy for dealing with this. I did find it interesting that they said that this particular principle ends up being the one that shows up the most in the book. Like this one just keeps coming back up and up and up. So it, it says it's the most visible organizing principle in our architecture diagrams. But it makes sense though, right? Because from an architectural point of view, that's what, if you're trying to piece together a bunch of components, this principle is trying to reduce those dependencies or, or make those dependencies, how should I say it, like less known? Is that a better way to say it? You control the direction of them, right? That's really what it is, is you can draw boxes around it and say, I control how these dependencies work. Instead of your code dictating like that that big tree that was shown like towards the beginning, that's really what it boils down to is trying to loosen those those hard lines. So that's it. We've covered the initial pieces of solid and we'll be getting back into the next section later on. Although the next episode we're gonna be doing something fun. Joe, you want to uh before before we go on to the next few pieces here, you had an idea, and and I love it. So you want to explain what what our next topic is going to be? Sure, um, we're still kind of ironing out the details. Um, but the idea is a couple of years ago we did a a, a show, maybe we even did two shows. Um, kind of talking about our favorite gadgets and stuff around this time of year because a lot of stuff goes on sale Black Friday and everything. So we thought it'd be kind of fun to come up with some sort of budget, and each ha- uh each one of us kind of runs off and you know like uh window shops. I don't know. Like <laughs> we basically use up that budget on stuff that we would want to uh, actually use, and so we think it's going to be a little fun exercise. And we're still kind of figuring out the rules. So if you have any suggestions, uh, let us know in that comment to win the book. And we said the budget was going to be $25,000, right? 25000 $25, Yeah, yeah. That's yes. what we said, right? <laughs> All right. All the tech we can play with. Yes. No, we're like no. 2000 on a computer and the rest into savings. No, that <laughs> that uh, that $25,000 will buy you an iPhone. And by the way, <laughs> ouch. Hey, hey, by the way, none of this goes into savings. If you don't use it, it burns. Oh, okay. That <laughs> yeah. changes everything. Yeah. So anyways, that'll be the next fun one that comes out after this episode. And then we're going to jump back into the clean architecture. So just uh, be aware we're going to have a, a fun one soon. All right. And so with that, uh, we will have links for our resources that we like f- for this book, as well as uh, we mentioned Sonar Cube. So I'll include that. And we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the, the tip, tip of the week. week. <laughs> yeah, baby. Hey, we're Sorry. getting dangerously close to what Joe's got to answer for. Why, why is he laughing so much? <laughs> I squeezed one in there. I uh, I, I said tip of the week, I think first. Oh. <laughs> I guess we'll find out when. Well, when the editor does the editing, we'll see who won the contest of <laughs> saying it first. Uh, it was a race. I feel it's not going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just cut him out. Did you hear him say anything just uh, now? Yeah, I don't, think I I don't hear it either. Uh, it was a yeah. fragment of his My favorite kind of race is the race when the other people don't know that they're racing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're that guy at the stoplight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Uh, yep. All right. So, Outlaw, you are up first. All right. So, uh, we've talked about machine learning. 
uh, in the past and, and that uh, I think we've mentioned that I've been reading up on it or whatever, but I thought that I would include a link to, if you haven't already started playing with machine learning, um, there is a studio.azureml.net where you can start playing with machine learning in Azure today, right now for free. And so I thought we would include a link to that as well as there's some tutorials out there, like giving you some examples of things that you can do. Um, so, you know, just a pretty neat opportunity. If you, if you have any interest in it, uh, you can start playing around with it if you haven't already. For free. For free. That's awesome. Now right. I will, let me put a caveat on that. If you create, if you do use the free service, it's not like you're going to be able to do anything production with it. And the results of your uh, model that you're going to create are going to, it's only going to be good for eight hours. But you get to right? play. But you get to, you get to experiment with it. And it, yeah. and it's still, it's still a worthwhile, uh, ex, you know, use of your time. Awesome. All right. So I've got a couple, only because it's really uh, one with the, I don't know, a side of another one. So the first one is from Nate, the DBA in our Slack channel. Awesome guy. He's, he's always sharing and helping people out over there. And I'd never heard of this before. And it's amazing. So if you've messed with SQL server and you've ever had a performance issue, then chances are you probably know what an execution plan is. If you don't, maybe I should find a link and maybe I'll remember to, but either which way, one of the things that you can do is if if you want somebody to help you out, if you have a DBA friend and and you need some help, there's a site called pastetheplan.com and you can go in there and copy in your XML and plop it up there and you can share your execution plan and somebody can look at it and say, hey, you have a table scan over here. You need to introduce an index or hey, you've got this over here. Pretty cool stuff. Like I'd never heard of it. So really awesome. Like that that's amazing. Um, the other thing I have is, so I built my own computer slash Hackintosh slash whatever, and was really excited about it, happy with it. And it just started blue screening like crazy. Oh, and I was like, what is this garbage? Right? Like, and so I start doing some Google, like literally boot into it and it would die like immediately just blue screen. And I was like, man, this really doesn't make me happy. So I looked it up and apparently they were saying, oh, it's probably bad memory. And I'm like, man, that doesn't happen. Like, that's not real. People don't get bad RAM. Not anymore, right? You think That's what you're thinking. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right? I mean. You're like, yeah, that was a problem like, you know, 15 years ago. Dude, I've built so many computers. Like, I've never had this problem. So the tip I wanted to share is if you ever are getting blue screens or anything like that and you want to at least try to find out if it's your RAM, there's a website called Memtest86, and it basically boots up in your UEFI, and it will actually run all kinds of test patterns on your memory. And sure enough, both the sticks that I had, both of them were showing errors. Here's the crazy wow. part. When I saw that you had a link there, I was like, wait a minute, that thing is still, that can't still be made, right? Like that can't still be current. And yet there's still, there's a release from July of this year. Yeah, dude. This thing has been in development since 1994. Isn't that awesome? That is insane and to it's, me. It's it a nice that, interface, dude. Yeah. Like I'm looking really at the, the current screenshots of it. It's coming a long way. So, yeah, man, I RMA'd my memory, or yeah, I RMA'd my memory, 
And I got it back and I stuck it back in there and ran that again because I was like, man, if I got some more bad memory, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> That's why Perfect. you were so forgetful for a while. Right, right. I got that bad memory. Yeah, sorry. Wait, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't so, even know what that was a reference to. <laughs> you don't remember bad medicine? Come on, man. Uh, I got bad memory. Yeah, but anyway. it wasn't bad memory. It okay. is now. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, anyways. It does. It, it worked. It was amazing. Like, and it runs all slew of tests on it. And it will also check it with multi-threaded processors to make sure the processor is accessing the RAM in the right spots and all that. Like, it, it was killer. Great tool. If you ever run into any problems, you start getting blue screens, check that out. It might save you. Now, it takes a lot of time. Depending on how mm. much RAM you have, it takes a lot of time to run through all the passes. But it's worth it. I think that was a humble brag, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what was a humble brag? Takes a long time. Bad memories. <laughs> okay. See, okay. now, now you want to sing it. No. I've got so much memory, it's going to take a while. I have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my tip of the week comes from Andrew, uh, and then I'll, I'll tell me about it. But uh, Andrew Diamond in, uh, talked about it in Slack channel, and it is the Regex crossword. I've actually been playing it until I got stuck here while we were recording. So if I've been quiet... <laughs> It's because I was trying to figure out what letters speak and hello have in common besides the E. Anyway, um, it's a really cool, uh, I mean, it's just, it sounds just like it's, it says it's a crossword where you've got stuff going vertical and horizontal and you've got to find the, the matching things in common between those two. And uh, I'm still in the beginner stuff and it's it's gotten pretty tough, but they start you off easy. So it's a, a really cool way of learning bridge expressions. And what I really like about it is every other way I've ever, like, looked at or attacked radio special this has been from the writing viewpoint and this is kind of going from reading so you're actually generating the text that is in common between these two things so i think it's a really cool way of uh, learning it and uh, hopefully that means i'll actually remember what i learned this time wait does so, anybody want to learn regex is that a thing <laughs> so just to, to illustrate an example of what he's describing here let's say you had the most basic of all crossword puzzles where there was only one square for one letter that had to be filled in. And on the vertical, the, uh, the, the quote, you know, hint for the vertical would be A or B. And the hint for the horizontal would be A or Z. And you have to enter in some letter that solves both of those, right? And uh, so, yeah, you have you have to be able to read the regular expressions in both directions in order to figure out what should go in that. And it's going to get more complicated as you go on. <laughs> See, Alan, trying. Uh, it hurts my brain. <laughs> I, I don't need. <laughs> I feel like I need to flip my computer sideways to look at it. Well, there's actually arrows for that. There's little arrows where you can rotate the. Oh, uh, oh I didn't know about the arrows. Yeah, yeah. Man. oh, <laughs> to the to the so so you'll enter in your answer right in that square, and then there's a validate button that'll tell you you know whether or not you got it right and you can move on or not. But to the left and right of the validate button are some arrows so that you can rotate the puzzle around so that you can read it more easily. Hey, what are you supposed oh, to yeah, type in nice. the field? Is there just one letter that's supposed to go there? That doesn't look right. Well, it depends on, uh, I guess, which... In the beginning, it'll be how one, advanced but man. You, you decided to pick. You could start with the tutorial for the... Uh, I probably need to do the tutorial because I don't understand what's For the beginning levels. Because I'm pretty sure I'm going to rock this. 
<laughs> Maybe not. Uh, yeah, the first like the first ones will be like uh, the top will be like A pipe B, so A or B, and the left to right will be like um, you know A star, which means uh, you know one or more A's, and so the letter that has in common there would be just one single A. But as it goes on, and you add more boxes, it's definitely uh, gets a little more tricky. It's like regex Sudoku. <laughs> Okay, so I'm killing the tutorial, just destroying it, man. <laughs> just saying. Just killing it. I'm, I'm already on number four. Look at that, man. All right, so moving on to the show summary. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, we, We're going to have another two hours of, of watching us play Red <laughs> Well, we are up to page 92 in this book already. Um, and uh, we've just finished up with the solid principle and the pair, the programming paradigms. And so, hope you all enjoyed, and we'll have a really good show notes, so you should check them out. I do like the paradigms. Yeah, thanks, Alan. <laughs> you we'll, got it. We'll never be able to say it again. <laughs> Anytime. Correctly. All right, so with that, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Be sure to leave us a review by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. And follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or YouTube or anywhere else. If you go to codingblocks.net, you find a bunch of links at the top of the page. You're not going to ask about my, my favorite Oh, part of your show? favorite. No, yeah, we need this. What's your favorite? Yep. I, I guess I should have thought of something before I uh, <laughs> brought it back up. No, it's got to be those uh, sweet, dank memes. <laughs>